300 other teens. You know, I was 14, raised in a Christian home. I knew all the right stuff. I don't know why, but I just never really made it my own. But something clicked on that Wednesday night service. The worship was going on. I'm listening to the speaker. And I just began to just to sense the Spirit of God speaking to me, saying, easily, I want your heart. And I just said, okay. And I did. It was amazing. It was the most beautiful thing. And sort of began this lifelong journey of just seeking after him. Fast forward a few years now. I was at college. I was a young college student just, you know, asking those questions that all college students ask. You know, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? You know, and, and, and Lord, can I ever get a date and get married? What am I supposed to do with my life? All those kind of deep questions, you know. And just I sense the Lord beginning to call me in a deeper way, not just to salvation, but to full, fully surrender myself to him and his purposes for my life, whatever that looked like. And I had some plans. I had some ambitions. I was places that I was going to go, things I was going to do, you know. But the Lord says, do you trust me with your future? I said, okay. So I said yes to him. It's just little did I know what would be in store. Little did I know that, you know, just the, the, the adventure that God will take you on as you say yes to him. But it begins with a call. God doesn't grab you by the hand and drag you kicking and screaming. I feel that way. But really, it doesn't. That's not how, he really begins with a call. He says, you, I want you. I want you to follow me. In the Gospels, we kind of see this story, too. Um, and, and Jesus, by the way, one of the terms that Jesus is referred to is rabbi. You've heard that term, especially if you have Jewish friends. Rabbi is sort of like today, much like this. And, you know, we've had rabbi on his business card or whatever it is. In Jesus' day, that so much wasn't the case. A rabbi wasn't in charge of a synagogue. A rabbi was simply um, a, a, a learned and skilled teacher of the scriptures. That's what rabbi means. It means teacher. And Jesus was one of these. And let me give you just a tiny bit of background, too, about, about how, sort of how this relationship worked. Because uh, if a rabbi was a teacher, teachers need what? They need students, right? And there wasn't, you, know, you don't sign up and you go to school. You just, if you're a rabbi, you want to kind of gather your own people. You want to gather your own students. So typically, in first century Judaism, um, there was this expectation of all children that they would be educated in the ways of the Lord. Somebody say amen. It's beautiful. They would be taught, boys and girls from a young age, they would be taught, uh, you know, the, the stories of the Torah, the stories of the history of God's people. And uh, they would even be taught to memorize portions of Scripture. They would be taught the Shema, you know, from Deuteronomy chapter 4, I believe. They would be taught to recite these. And as they get older, more would be expected of them, of all boys and girls. But at a certain point, um, there would be a little bit more of a, of, a, of a weight put upon the young men to learn. And even boys up until, they're, up until they're around age 12 would be expected to memorize very large portions, if not the entire five books of the Torah, of the law. We, we, we don't do that, you know. We get our, if, we, if our kids memorize John 3.16 and Psalm 20, they're doing good. But in, in Jesus' day, it was just how you did it, you know. You don't have, you don't have scrolls and all these kind of things. At the house. If, if, if the word's going to be with you, it's got to be inside of you. So you're going to memorize all of this. At a certain point, though, around age 12, 13, there would be a, a, a sort of the cream of the crop would rise and those that showed a special aptitude for theological learning, the ones who just seemed to get it, like, man, this kid just understands it. 
you know, maybe one out of eight or nine or ten kids would just say, yeah, that kid really is meant to be great. He's going to, you know, he would be encouraged then to, to pursue being a professional sort of learner, a studier of the law. Maybe he'd be a scribe. Maybe he would be, uh, you know, uh, kind of join the Pharisee or the Sadducee, whatever those sects are. Um, but what needed to happen is he needed to be taught under a rabbi. He needed to learn. He needed to be discipled and mentored. So as this young man got into his teens, you know, he would have his eye on the rabbi of his choice, you know, and, and like, you, you really, you want, the, you want the big ones. You want to go after the ones that are, that are well-known, the ones that are traveling all over Israel, speaking in the, in the biggest synagogues, the one that have the most followers. And you would go to this, if you're a young student, you would go to this particular, to this rabbi, and you would, you would sort of begin this relationship with him, and you would say, do I have, can I be your student? Can I be your Talmud? That's the Hebrew word. Can I be your student? You know, and, it's, and, and the, the rabbi, of course, would begin to ask some questions, interviewing questions. You know, well, tell me, have you, have you memorized the book of Genesis? And the student would say, yes, I have. Well, you know, tell me, begin to recite Genesis chapter 15. We rattle off. Have you memorized Exodus? Yes. Well, let me hear Exodus 19. Asking all these questions. I want to see how thoroughly educated you are. How qualified are you to be my Talmud, to be my student? And of the ones who really were the most qualified, those best of the best, those merit, national merit scholars, the rabbi would look and say, I want you to come and to follow me. I choose you to be my Talmud. You have what it takes. And the rest, he would gently, kindly encourage them to pursue something else. Perhaps be a fisherman. Perhaps be a carpenter. Because you don't have what it takes to be one of my Talmudim, one of my students. And this was the sort of the common methodology uh, for the teacher-learner relationship in Jesus' day. This is what, this is what many rabbis would travel, and each of the, a lot of rabbis kind of going around, and they would go from place to place. They would teach in synagogue. They would travel, and each of the rabbis would have a, a small collection of, of, of Talmudim, of disciples, of young ones with them, and they would sit at the feet of the rabbi, and they would listen and they would, they would learn from him, and they would ask questions, and they would imitate what he does and what he says and how he would interpret scripture. They would have left behind everything of, of the past and were following after. But here's, here's what's interesting about, about Jesus. His method as a rabbi from the very beginning, is a little bit off. First of all, he doesn't limit himself to teaching in synagogues. He is in synagogues, but sometimes he's not. Sometimes we find him teaching on the side of a mountain, speaking not just to the, the educated men of the synagogue, he's speaking to women and children, to the poor, to lepers, to anyone. Other times he goes and he gets in a boat and he's beginning to, to, to preach from a boat. And he's doing all kinds of things to sort of begin to raise the eyes. Like, hey, you're not quite a normal rabbi, are you? And Jesus says, oh, no, I'm not. And then the most amazing thing happens. The Bible tells us that he's walking along, and he puts his eye on some fishermen. Peter, James, and John, Andrew. The Bible says they're minding their own business, tending their nets, fixing, mending their nets, and he says, guys, come and follow me. 
Now think about this. Jesus is essentially looking at them and saying, you guys, you have what it takes to be my Talmudim. I want you. I choose you. You who are fishermen. You who are you know, tax collectors. You who, who have been passed over. The kind of disciples that I want. You're the kind of students that I want. And I, I can tell you what, that's, that's encouraging to me to think that that's how Jesus looks at you and I. He looks at you and I, and he says, you, 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 you have what it takes to be my student, to be my disciple. You haven't memorized the Torah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, you're not the best at, at you know, at, at, at parsing out Greek words and Hebrew words and all that stuff. You know, you, you struggle with reading the Bible sometimes. You struggle with prayer sometimes. You know, you, you kind of have a bad attitude. Jesus says, I get it. It's okay. You have what it takes to be my disciple. Come on. You don't feel welcome in churches. You don't feel like you fit in with the religious crowd. That's okay, Jesus says. Come on. You've got what it takes to be my disciple. You're the kind of person that I want. You're the kind of person that I want to, 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 to learn from me. And I got to tell church, I got to tell you, this is revolutionary. Because it sets in motion the kind of kingdom that he is wanting to establish. It's an upside down kingdom. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's an upside down kingdom. So he initiates this relationship. It's important to remember that. In your life, Jesus initiated the relationship. I don't care how great your parents were dragging you to tr- church. Some of us had drug problems. We were drugged to church on Sunday, drug on Wednesday night, drug on Saturday, whatever it was. I don't care how many times you were drugged to church. Jesus is the one who is initiating that relationship in your life. He is the one who is coming after you saying, I want you to come and to follow me. And every one of us is going to have to make that choice. Do I say yes to the call of Jesus? Do I believe him? Do I take him at his word? That he sees something in me that others don't. That he sees something in me that even I don't see. But if he says, follow me, he sees something that must be there. Do I trust him enough to say yes? So he initiates a relationship. He calls these disciples to be devoted students, first of all. you got to move past just admiring Jesus. They have to listen and learn and study and imitate their teacher. Students that... But ultimately, Jesus is not just looking for students that, can, that he can make better. He's looking for broken, lost, dead sons and daughters that he can make alive. That's really what sets him apart from every other rabbi. He's looking for the lost to bring them home. So he says, basically, you have what it takes. Luke's, let me read this in, in Luke chapter 6. I do this every time, don't I? Pages always flip over. One day I will be like a little iPad with all this stuff here. <laughs> Never mind, no, I won't. Here we go. He went, uh, chapter, uh, Luke 6, chapter 6, verse 17. He went down with them. I'll go to 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Boy, we could talk about that for a long time. Before he makes a major decision, he spends the night with the Father in prayer. How many of us do that? Yeah, come on. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. So they moved from disciples to apostles. But keep in mind, they were not 12. How many disciples were there? Not 12. There were lots. There were lots of disciples. There were 12 apostles, but there were lots of disciples. There were lots of these ones that he called to sit and be at his feet. Remember this. Come on. Lots that had 
had, had said yes to the call of Jesus and were following him around city to city, learning to be like him. There were more than 12. There were many who were his disciples. Y'all say many disciples. This is important, guys. It's going to come back in a few minutes. There were many disciples. We don't know their names, but there were many of them who were following Jesus, who wanted to be like him, who wanted to learn from him and, be, and for, for, to be his students. So he set aside 12, though. He went down and begins to teach them. Um, let's skip over here to Luke 14 then. This is important. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Word about Jesus has gotten out. His, his, his methods are, are controversial and wonders are astonishing. His authority is unquestioned. He is like nothing that the people of Israel have ever seen. They've only heard stories of the past but they're seeing it now with their own eyes. They're seeing the kingdom of God breaking through, and they don't know what to do with it. But they're drawn to Jesus. They're drawn to this man. Maybe he's the Messiah. We don't know. He doesn't look like much. He's got this, this goofy accent from up in, the, up in the, 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 the hollers of Galilee. He's not much to look at, but he's got such authority. When he's, it's almost like when he speaks, like the earth shakes. And crowds are flocking to Jesus. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25, large crowds were traveling to, with Jesus. Y'all say large crowds. And Jesus then looks out at him and he says, what every church growth sort of expert would say not to do. Jesus looks and he thinks to himself, I got too many people. I don't know if he thought that or not. The Bible doesn't say it. But it seems like it because of what he says right here. Turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What? Come on. Jesus is speaking to all this thousand people out there. You know, and it's, it's almost like he says this, hey, how many of you want to be my disciple? Raise your hand. Oh, we want to be your disciple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, keep your hands up. All right, who's willing to hate your father? Some hands go down. I love my dad. I don't want to hate him. How many of you are willing to hate your mom? I don't want to hate my mom. She cooks great breakfast for me. How many of you are willing to hate your own life? Hands go down, hands go down, hands go down. He says, unless you are willing to say no to everything else. But Jesus, I thought we could be my disciple. But Jesus, I thought, we, I thought we had what it takes to be like you. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And he says, yes, you do have what it takes to be like me. But you need to know that to be like me means marching to my own death, laying down my own rights, saying no to everything that I really want so that I can bring honor and glory to the Father. That's where I'm going. And if you want to be like me, then we can go together. But there's no other direction than towards the cross, says Jesus. But then he goes into this. He begins to really press this issue home. And I feel like it's, it's, it's sort of it's, it's this next 
idea that the Spirit of God is going to be bringing to churches, not just here, but, but in our culture, in our, where we are. He says this. He says, um, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Meg and I, we have dreams of remodeling our kitchen. We talk about it a lot. You know, especially when things are like breaking, you know, like when the formica is like bubbling and coming up off the countertop or, you know, dishes. She's like, Brian, when are we going to do this? You know? I was like, well, baby, it's going to cost. How much is it going to Let's talk about it. How much is it going to Well, we got new cabinets. It's going to cost this much, new appliances. And we really just, you know, we got to fix something with the ceiling. And it's going to cost, you know, we estimate what, ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. What we don't do is just go to Lowe's and begin to pile stuff in my cart and hope it all works out in the end. I need to know what will this require of me. And Jesus says, you're going to have to know to being my disciple. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he'll send a delegation where the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is where all the butts begin. But Jesus, surely you can't mean this. Yes, I do. Surely, Jesus, you don't mean this. Yes, I do. But, 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 but. Everything you have, it's an ultimate demand. Jesus is making ultimatums. Are you really aware of what's at stake? You guys ever install like new software on your computer, you know, or a new program or something, and you know, or they always and they have to update the what do they call them, the terms and conditions? You ever see those? Whenever you put something in, you install it, and it says, "Please review the terms and conditions." And it's like you begin to scroll down, like, "Oh my word!" There's thirteen thousand pages of this, and it's all in six-point font, condensed font. There's no way I'm going to read all of this. But at the very bottom, there's this big appealing button that says, I have read and agree with the terms of conditions. And you lie every time you click that button. You know you do. You've not read that. You just hope it's okay. And I bet in some of those, some like nerdy developer, you know, page 500 down is beginning to write just gibberish because he knows no one's going to read it. It's going to be, uh, you know, four score and seven years ago. It's writing nonsense. Who reads this apart from the lawyers? The good news is Jesus doesn't have to just so flippantly agree to this without really considering the cost. The good news is Jesus doesn't have 13,000 pages of terms and conditions. He has one simple thing. I want everything. Count the cost and make the choice. We can love money or we can love Jesus, but we can't love both. We can love stuff, vacations, new cars, big fat bank accounts, 
We can love to see our income going up. Oh, I love to see that. I love another promotion. I love to get, I want to invest more. We can love that stuff or we can love Jesus. We can't love both. We can love the applause of the world. We can to be affirmed. We want the thumbs up on our social media posts. Man, I want likes. I want to have an Instagram-worthy life. Look at my good side. Come on, share this thing. Retweet this thing. I want to, we can, we can love applause, or we can love Jesus, but we can't love both. We get to choose one or the other. He says, make a choice, and that choice, Jesus makes it clear that the choice to walk with him will be painful. He promises that. He promises that friends will not understand and your family will have a hard time with your choice. You don't believe me? Ask some of our Christian brothers and sisters living in predominantly Muslim countries. The choice is hard, but that's the cost of the call. I want to read to you something from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor in 1930s Germany. He was part of the, the, the what they call the confessing movement was in a pretty sorry state. And then you bring into that the cultural pressure of Nazi Germany. And church after church after church just begins to acquiesce to the culture and to the powers of the state. And Bonhoeffer is burdened by that. He's burdened by what he calls cheap grace. And he's convicted by this. He begins to write in his work called The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. That's cheap grace. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus, the lover of our souls. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. And I believe that the time will come when we will see the cost of the call in, in, in more pressing clarity than we've ever seen it before. We, we are moving into a time when to carry the name of Jesus will cost an employee, it will business owner, it will cost you business. If you're an employee, it will cost you promotions. If you're in politics, it will cost you elections. And that's just the beginning of it. This is guaranteed 
to cost. And God forbid we move into the time like some of our persecuted church brothers and sisters around the world are. They live in a reality where to carry the name of Jesus brings a death warrant upon them and their family. That's the reality. And Jesus says, make that choice. Count the cost. Are you ready for what you're signing up for? One more movement. You guys with me? Y'all, this is heavy. Come on, I love you guys. This is heavy stuff, you guys. Come on. I'm sorry. But this is, God is so good. Listen to this. Let's go to John chapter 6. It's about to get a little bit heavier, and then there's some beautiful news at the end. God loves us. Come on, let's go to John chapter 6. So Jesus has been teaching, and here in John, he begins to give some some imagery as to who he really is. He begins to refer to himself in this very strange way, calls himself the bread of life, right? That's really weird to say that, you know? Um, And they've been, you know, so it's like, uh, he calls himself, and the disciples ask, what are you talking about, bread of life and all this stuff? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of hints to the, to the time way back in Exodus. Remember when people were in Exodus and God brought them out of, out of Egypt Across the Red Sea, they're in the desert. Do you guys remember that time? And they didn't have any grocery stores, no Aldi, no crops to grow. They have nothing to eat in the desert. And God has to supernaturally provide food for them, so he puts what on the ground every day? Manna. You know what manna means in Hebrew? It means, what the heck is this? I kid you not. They would have it all the time. And then in John 6 says, that's me. I am the sustenance from heaven. I am the nourishment from heaven that's going to keep you alive. And they still don't get it. And Jesus has to get even more explicit. He's like, oh, guys, I really have to spell, spell this out for you. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven, guys. Listen to me. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews are scratching their head going, we don't get it. Verse 53. I think it's up here. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you. In other words, shut up and listen. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Somebody tweet that right there. Come on. Somebody put that on an Instagram post right there. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. And he's making a statement. That unless I am inside of you as the very source of your life. You're already dead. It's not about eating bread. It's not about taking the communion elements. It's about my life invading your life. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. You're dead, says Jesus, unless you feed upon my life. So I'm going to read to you the most painful verse, I believe, in the Gospels, one of them. Ironically, well, I'll get there, but let's read 60. On hearing it, many 
this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And go on to verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples, y'all say disciples, turned back and no longer followed him. There's a sifting that the Lord allows to happen. There's a pruning that the Lord allows to happen. And he stands in front of, let's pretend like it's 500 disciples. 500 ones that he knows by name. Many of them that he called personally. Come on, come walk with me. That he's counseled that he's taught, that he's encouraged, that have left their own lives in the past. And they've said, yeah, and they've gone, and they've made such progress. They've gone so far. They've seen his miracles. We know that the Bible says that he sent many of them out to do those miracles too. He sent them out with power. Many of these disciples that we just read about have encountered supernatural things by the power of their own hands. They've seen kingdom things. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him cure the sick and heal the blind. And Jesus is speaking to these, let's say 500, I don't know how many are there, I'm just making that. He speaks to them and he says, I got to tell you, disciples, you've been with me all this time, but you need to know what this is really going to cost. Not just learning to speak like I speak, not just learning the, the values of the kingdom. Not just being willing to suffer and die for what you believe in. But unless, have you, unless you have mystical union with me, you're already dead. And you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. The Bible says that many said, these ones turning to one another and saying, guy, he's lost it. He's off the deep end. We can't do this. He's, he's not the rabbi that we thought he was. He's not the teacher that, he, that we thought he was. He may can do great signs and wonders, but this is just crazy. He's talking like a lunatic. And one by one, they get up and they begin to leave. Ten leave here. Fifteen. Another twenty. A whole cluster over here is gone. Dwindles down, 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 down. How many more can leave? I don't know. They're still leaving. They're still going. They're going back. And in verse 67, he turns to the twelve. I bet he's weeping. I bet he is. I know the heart of Jesus, church. I know the heart of Jesus. I know he's weeping as he turns and he says, do you want to leave me too? Decision time, 12. Decision time, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Thomas. Decision time. Lying in the sand. Jesus says, I've just unpacked to you the cost of the call. What are you going to do with it? It's going to cost you your own life. You're already dead. The only way to be alive is to be in me. I would imagine that there's a lot of silence in that moment before Peter finally says something. Lord, to whom will we go? Who else is like you? Who else can do the things that you can do? Who else has power over life and death? 
Who else understands us like you understand us? Who else is connected to the Father like you're connected to the Father? There's nowhere else to go, God. He says, we have come. Oh, those are two different things, y'all. Come on, Eve. And to know. Oh, those are two different things, y'all. Come on. We have a culture of believers. We have a culture of, oh, we, have, we have a culture, we have, we have so many that believe the doctrinal points of the faith. You know, it's almost like we could go, we could almost like moving farther, farther into a circle. On, on the out here, you've got ones that are admirers of Jesus. I admire Jesus. He's so good. He teaches good things. And even in here, you could have ones that are believers. I don't just admire, but I believe Jesus. You know, I would agree with these statements there in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God. I believe that there was a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago, and he died on the cross so that I could live forever with God. I'm a believer. That's good, right? Those are good things. And then in here, you even have some that are, that are really followers. Like, you know, I don't just believe. I want to follow you, though. I want to get plugged into a church. I want to be part of a family. I want to, I want to do the things that Jesus did. I want to study the scriptures. I want to understand this kind of stuff. I want to, I want to raise my kids to go to, to go to Sunday school and VBS and all the other kind of things. I want to be a follower. But I wonder if Jesus is saying, but there's one more place I want you to go. Can you be in here? Can you go past being an admirer? Go past being a believer? Go past even being a follower? Go past being a disciple? Even go beyond being a disciple? Come into my very life. Be a son. Be a daughter made alive again whose life I can invade with my own and make you fully alive in the way that you are meant to live. And Peter says, that's it. You, we've come to know and to believe that you, and to believe and to know, no means experience, no means encounter wholeheartedly, not just know up here, it means to experience it. We've come to know that you are the Holy One. Tell us that red is blue and blue is green. You can tell us that the world is flat and the moon is made of cheese and we will believe you. Why? Because you define reality. You are the source of all truth. Everything that comes out of your mouth is true. You are the compass by which we, or, we order our lives. We can't go anywhere else, he says. He's calling us into union with himself. It's weird language, I get it. Eating and drinking. But think about just from a, from a, from a nutrition standpoint, what does food and drink do? Does it just stay here? Does it just stay here? What happens to the nutrients in food? It goes to every cell of your body, doesn't it? That's where he wants to be. <laughs> Come on, right? There's good news, though, for those who say yes at that point. The road is hard. The road to the cross is hard. But there's an incredible power that awaits when he comes up from the dead on Easter Sunday, when he pours out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, these 12 are not the same. 
when you encounter Jesus and say yes to him, you will not be the same, I promise you. You will be a different creature altogether. Music team, come on up. I know you got another, we're going to do some more worship here at the end. Two things, though, I want you to do this. I want you, I know you have been, but I want you to count the cost. In light of these cultural shifts that we've seen in the last 10 years, you need to be aware that the cost is getting greater. Count that, measure it. Ask, is this really what I've signed up for? And if you're not sure, ask him for a revelation of his love to you. Ask him to speak the call in a fresh way to your heart. That call that got your attention, something got your attention, didn't it? Years ago, for some of us, Maybe not that long ago, something got our, got, got, got our attention. Something caused us to put down those nets and to start walking. Go back to that place. Go back to that place. It's the same Jesus. The same Jesus that looks you in the eye and says, you have what it takes. It's his journey you're on, not your own. He's going to do this. He's going to finish it. Come on, let's stand up together. We pray for us, worship team. We're going to go in. Our ministry time here at the end, we have an open floor here. If you want to come and just, just be before the Lord, this is a great time to do that. If we can pray for you specifically, several of us will be over here. Come over to this side, to your left-hand side. And we'll pray for you on this. There's some physical needs that we can pray healing for. We want to do that as well. We want to lay hands on you and believe for your healing today. Jesus, where else will we go? Where else can we go, God? You've, you've got it. You've got everything. You've got the words of life. We want to be caught up in your own life, caught up in your love. Not just believe you, but to know you and to be known by you. Father, woo our hearts, Lord, for those that are that feel like they're on the edge, they're struggling with doubt, fear, apathy. God, would you begin to woo their hearts? Give them a revelation of your love today. The lover of their souls, their bridegroom, their father, their maker, their redeemer. apple of their eye.